the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Yeah, g'day. Jessica Hayes in the chair with you this afternoon on the Country Hour. Great to be catching up with you on this Friday. Today, you're headed to the southwest where the avocado season is in full swing. Volumes are well down, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. Growers this year, if they're 50% down roughly on last year's volume, given the increase of value, they're probably going to make the same kind of money. So, you know, from a grower's point of view, I'd imagine no grower ever likes to have less of a crop, but given the returns this year, I can't imagine too many of them will be complaining. You'll catch up with Josh Franceschi from the Avocado Collective very soon. And fires have been burning in the state south and a lot of plantation timber is believed to have been impacted. And the bill is expected to be significant. The cost of reforesting those areas and re-establishing them will be in excess of a million dollars. So at the very least, that's quantifying the, the economic damage to it. Plenty more on that soon. And before the news at one, you'll get all the details of this week's Mount Barker cattle sales. A double header today with Tracy Kilner from MLA. And also a wrap of the wool market with Danny Burkett after the first selling week of the year. And as always, if you'd like to join the conversation this afternoon, be it from the header, maybe the boat or the station, you can send me a text. The number is 0448 That number again, if you're getting in touch this afternoon, 0448 Up first today, though, the Grains Industry Association of WA has just released its latest crop report, which looks back at the 2022-23 season. And as you've been hearing on the Country Hour in the last few weeks, the state has been edging ever closer to breaking the record volumes harvested in the 2021-22 season. Michael Lamond authored today's Giwa Crop Report. Michael, is it officially a record production year in WA? Oh, yeah, definitely, Jess. And, you know, as reported by CBH recently, you know, they've exceeded 2021 deliveries and there's still a bit to go, you know. So we report on all production. So that's not just to CBH, but, but you know, all production of all crops across the state, what's retained for seed and other things and, you know, privately acquired and, and privately sold. So, yeah, we definitely have exceeded 2021 now. And in the crop report that's out today, we've got about 26 million tonne total grain there. You would probably see it out. There could be a little bit more than that, but it's it's probably going to be around the mark, I think. Okay. So the grain harvest still very much underway in some parts, mainly the Albany and the Esperance zones. You're forecasting at this stage 26 million, but that could go higher. Yeah, um, it, it could, yes. But so so what's in the Albany and the Esperance port zones, there isn't a lot of harvest still to go. It's, you know, in the Albany port zone, there is more than the Esperance port zone. But what, 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 is, what is the case is that there's a lot of grain that hasn't been delivered yet due to a whole range of reasons. But there's a lot of lot of graining bags, a lot of graining temporary storage, and particularly in the Esperance port zone that needs cleaning or drying. In the Albany port zone, there still is a bit of grain to go. And in both those zones, we estimate there's probably still another 20% still out there. So uh, we've sort of taken account of that in the 26 million tonne, although, yeah, it could, it could edge higher, but, you know, probably not a lot higher, I wouldn't think. So we won't have an airtight final figure for still months to come, right? Yeah, it'll probably be, you know, well into February because it'll take a while for all this grain to find its its way to to the ports and and to the, the bulkheads. So, yeah, it, it will be a while before we know. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's just the, all those issues around logistics and and whatever that just event. There's a lot more grain on farm than normal. So we know, Michael, that it's going to be a record year in terms of volume. But has it been a profitable year for growers? Yeah, I mean, it looks like it has. I mean, most growers. A lot of growers haven't done their budgets yet, but the general indication is that just the extra tons 
in some cases where growers are able to make use of those early season prices, there's been a little bit of a slight increase over last year in 21. And even though the costs have gone up, a lot of growers were a little bit buffered from that from pre-purchasing prior to the 2022 year. There was some exposure to nitrogen in the end, but a lot of the ag chem and other costs were already absorbed into the to the running costs of the business. So, yeah, it, it looks it's it looks. I th- I'd say most growers would hard to generalise, but most growers are probably going to be as profitable as twenty twenty one. So two good years in a row, back to back. What does that mean for reinvestment and you know the short, medium, and longer term? Well, Jess, you know that's it's a it's an interesting question because and it is quite a topic that a lot of growers are thinking about in that you know they're you know, in, in financially better positions, you know, what do you do? And a lot of growers will reinvest, of course, in their production systems. And we've seen a lot of these, um, the reason we're getting these higher yields is, of course, due to, you know, favourable seasons. But it's not just that. It's the ability of growers to react quickly to um, the situation. It's having the confidence and, the, and also then the cash to actually, you know, put the fertiliser on, invest in more technology and machinery. So that definitely has had an impact in, keep getting these high yields that we're getting and these higher production levels. So, you know, that and a lot of growers are already talking about that and and that that investment in particularly soil, soil health, technology, you know, we've seen we've seen that those gains that have been made from that in that, you know, irrespective of what the season throws at you, you tend to get do get more consistent yields when you when you've got those things um, in place, such as deep riffing, soil immigration, lime, refinating down south and and other things. And then and having the technology and the capacity to actually get the crop in the ground quickly and then react to situations during the year, that's, that's, ha- that's having a huge impact on, even in low rainfall years, of still getting good tonnages. So, yeah, I think, you know, that, that's where a lot of the talk is around when growers are doing their budgets and just seeing where, you know, you know where the spend will be. You're tuned into the WA Country Hour. I'm Jessica Hayes. And this afternoon, you're hearing from the Grains Industry Association of WA's Crop Report author, Michael Lamond. Michael, looking around the regions, it looks like it's been a very, very good year in the Geraldton port zone. Yeah, well, Geraldton has now, you know, gone past that 4 million, well, it's went past 4 million tonnes, you know, a little while ago, and uh, which was the... Uh, the record set in 21. Uh, we've got it about 4.3, so there's a little bit dribbling in still. And yeah, so I mean, yeah, again, it's been an absolute cracker of a year in, in the Geraldton Port Zone. And I suppose the, the defining factor up there is that it's it's been good right through the north and the eastern areas that often fade away a bit. So in those low rainfall areas have had a very good year. There was that bit of a dip in July where some of the early crops suffered. So that that's taken a bit of the top off the total production but it's you know like four million tons for the for the zone is uh, is is an extremely good result a bit of a mixed bag across the quinana zone in terms of protein uh, but in the southern parts of the zone average yields hitting around six tons of the hectare in in the western areas that is just huge yeah i mean it's not just in the the west quinana where we're getting those very high yields it's it's all that the high rainfall rim of the whole grain belt is you know there's individual paddock averages up around that area so and I suppose the interesting thing about that West Kanana is that it was quite a late start. But you know, what when it when it did get going, you know, there wasn't the water logging. It was very warm, regular rainfall, and then rain through to through in August and September, and then the very mild conditions have just fueled those you know extremely high yields. So yeah, I mean the the Kanana in general, uh, there'll be more grain out of the both the Kanana zones than last year. We've we've got it set around about twelve million tons. And the interesting thing is, I suppose in the in the the northeast zone is going to be well over six million ton, which so that contribution for that low rainfall area this year for total tonnage in West Australia has been really significant. 
The report cites that there's still a little bit of subsoil moisture around in the southern parts of the Kwinana Zone. Yeah, well, it's not just the southern parts. I mean, we've been logging those, you know, just independently in my, in my, you know, my main business. And we, you know, there, there is a reasonable amount of subsoil moisture, you know, showing up in the probes, but also some of the cores that we've done. And, you know, which is surprising when you consider the, the yields that have, that have been taken in those areas. And so the drawdown is, is down around that 50 centimetres, but there's reasonable levels of subsoil moisture in quite a lot of the areas, not so much in the north, in the Geraldton Port Zone, but certainly once you get sort of north of the Great Eastern Highway and south, there is there's very good levels of subsoil moisture, which the question is, you know, whether the those subsoils are too hostile for the, gro- for the crops in 2023 20, to access. But I, I would think that most growers will be going into 23 knowing there's a bit of subsoil moisture there, which, you know, is always a good thing. And whilst the prognosis at the moment is, you know, for drier and hotter over the next three months, there is a chance of storms coming through from the north and the tropics. So, you know, that's very positive, really, going into 23, having some subsoil moisture. And that, that'll, that'll really be on the, on the minds of a lot of growers you know, when they're considering what they'll do, you know, this year. Looking at the Albany zone, that lack of water logging and frost really seems to have positioned the region to shine this year. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, most of the frost was in that, there was frost looking down into those southern regions, but most of it was in that central region where we lost over 2 million tonnes. So, but in that in that Albany port zone, yeah, there's just not that severe water logging. There is, you know, a little bit of water logging, but it came in later. And the, the lack of water logging, you know, has a really big impact in that in that zone. I suppose the other interesting thing is that that's really been obvious over the last just little while is the use of soil wetters and the and the early sown of grow, you know the growers are undertaking now in those areas are really helping them getting the crops up and alleviate the chance of waterlogging. That that's having a massive impact on tonnage in that western you know those high rainfall zones. The um, just the early planting it's quite a very simple thing, but it, it's had a it's had a really big impact and 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 we've seen it again this year. Finally, the Esperant zone, no finish in sight for some growers. A pretty difficult <laughs> harvest along the south coast. Oh yeah, well, not just the south coast. I mean, the, a lot of those regions that you know they they had nearly as much rain during harvest as they had you know the main season. So it's just yeah, very difficult harvest. Sort of back to the old days, I suppose that I remember. But it, it's you know a lot of a lot of rain, a lot of delays, a lot of sprouted grain, grain you know above deliverable you know moisture levels, snails, ergots, uh, ergot, you know a lot of lot of work to do down there to get to, and then also logistic issues you're not so much delivery time turnarounds it's, it's more ju- just another trucks to get the grain to bin there's a lot of grain on on farms still so you know that that takes time to, to work its way to port so yeah the growers there have had a had a really really difficult year but yeah you know, and then again i mean it's been a good year so i suppose you know you've got to take that as well just um, finally, Michael, you'd, you'd usually at the Grains Industry Association of WA be starting to talk about next season's planting soon, but can we expect this long, drawn-out harvest to push back those kind of estimates too? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to know. I mean, certainly growers have really run out of puff. You know, it's been a, it has been a, it's, it's been a long year, and then and then a late harvest is, yeah, it's hard to immediately become enthusiastic about 2023. But you know, I suppose uh, you know when you've had for most folk who have had two good years in a row, there's balance sheets are good, liquidity is good. There's, you know, a lot of growers already are really thinking about what what can they do to try to give them the best chance of getting these sort of yields again in the next five years. So, you know, that's infrastructure, machinery investment, technology investment, other things, you know, um, soil improvement, soil amelioration, that's had a big impact. So, you know, there there is, yeah, I mean, it, it, is, it is difficult when we're, you know, when a lot of growers will still be going in, in February, then, you know, a month later, they conceivably could be planting again. So, 
but you know, I suppose that's the. It, it it has been a really good year, and 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 you just can't take that from anyone, I suppose. So let's just, I suppose, see what happens. You know, over the next little while. Michael, thanks so much for coming on the Country Hour this afternoon. You have a great afternoon. Okay, good afternoon, Jess. See ya. Michael Mond from the Grains Industry Association of WA. So the state now expected to harvest more than 26 million tonnes, but that could go higher still. And off the back of two very good seasons in a row, Western Australian farmland values are continuing to rise with values jumping by around 20% in the last calendar year. Earlier this week, you heard about a 8,500 hectare property at Kojanup, which broke WA's record farm price when it sold for more than $100 million. Well, according to Rural Bank, WA land prices have doubled since 2018. Head of Agribusiness Development Andrew Smith says there's still plenty of upside. I think each year we look at the numbers and think, gee, that's another lift. But what we do expect out of the 2022 data is around a 20% increase and some significant sales will influence that where you've got large properties and large values changing hands. So we did expect a bit of an easing in 2023 with interest rates having picked up and also the input costs for things like fuel, fertiliser, etc. So Expect there to be some tightening, but uh, it does still seem very strong. Yeah, without sort of necessarily speculating or predicting what what might happen in the future, you mentioned interest rate increases and, and uncertainty over commodity prices. But what kind of scenarios would see prices either continue to rise or on the other hand fall in, in a significant way? Yeah, I don't think we will see much of a fall, but I do expect that in local markets in particular, that there will be continuing, I think, sales at quite high prices. And perhaps again, when you look at WA relative to other states across the country, it trades at a bit of a discount relative to its productive capacity. And so I think as property comes up, people will be sort of casting an eye to what land has been selling at in South Australia or Victoria, for example, which are, um, you know, probably between 20 to 30 percent higher in some cases. Yeah, yeah. So an, an eight and a half thousand hectare property in Cojun up in the Great Southern ha- has recently sold for a hundred million dollars. Uh, that's 10 million more than the estate agent originally valued the property at. And local people were already sceptical about that original value. You mentioned um, Western Australia compared to other states and you, you do look at uh, land prices across the country. Is Western Australia undervalued? Look, potentially, I think we did see a bit of a lag effect, really, because those higher rainfall areas of, say, the grain belt in Victoria took a lift in, in 2019 and 2020 and reached values that we never thought would be seen. And uh, that then played out through South Australia. And I, I think we're now seeing that in WA. So from my point of view, I think there's probably uh, still some upside there when you consider the characteristics for a cropping operation in particular and in any of those higher rainfall zones you know it does still look pretty good value so that that will be interesting to watch these big sales they obviously have to be backed by corporate money and investors they want reliable returns or they they take their money elsewhere do you think that that corporate investment are they looking for profitable farm businesses or are they looking at capital return when land is sold a blend, but I do think certainly they have an eye to that asset value and when they do realise on it at the end that there has been a good solid return over time. So 
That can sometimes be a, a dominant factor in their decision making and, and obviously looking for returns along the way. But a few of the recent transactions have had corporate involvement in them. And like all of us, I guess we do like to see things improve in terms of our investment. And, and a number of them have done quite well on that basis. Does corporate investment, does it distort the value of farmland? Look, it can, uh, not always, but it can in terms of, I guess, having that buying power, particularly on larger scale properties to be able to put, like you mentioned there earlier, $100 million together is a significant investment. And so that they do have buying power and that does play out. But I think what we have seen across Australia is really the family corporates quite dominant. So larger farming families expanding, accommodating the next generation have probably been the dominant players the last two to three years. So, you know, I think that in particularly that, that mid-range and scale is probably the sweet spot for most of our farming families. Is that a trend that you can see continuing? Yeah, I'd expect so. It's certainly uh, been quite a bit of structural adjustment in the industry with smaller farmers moving on and, and those neighbours buying them. And, and there's still quite a bit of that to run through, I expect. Rural Bank's Head of Agribusiness Development, Andrew Smith, speaking with Lucinda Jose about the continued rise of Western Australian land values. So values have jumped by around 20% in the last calendar year alone and have doubled since 2018. 22 past 12 on the Country Hour. The WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. To the state southwest now where avocado picking is continuing. Supply is predicted to be down by about 50% on last year across the state in 2023, but growers aren't complaining because market conditions have improved. You might recall how cheap an avocado was last year due to both a massive state and national crop, as well as low demand from the food service industry during the pandemic. Well, now growers say the price of fruit has doubled compared to 2021-22. Management grower and general manager of the Avocado Collective, Josh Franceschi, says it's been a smooth season. Uh, Standout points would most likely be just grower returns. They're significantly higher than they were last season due to less supply volume uh, and just better market conditions in general. Why is there less supply? Supply volumes vary year on year. We had a really bumper crop last season, so this season our harvest is, is a little bit down on that, that season, but you know, next season's harvest looks, looks to be another good one. In terms of volume numbers, what's the difference between this year and last year? This season we're roughly 50% down on last season, so we'll pack around about 1.4 million trays this season and we packed just shy of 3 million trays last season. And is that the case for producers across the state? Yeah, roughly, yeah. So I think Western Australia this year is looking at around about 3.8 to 3.9 million trays in total. And last year, we think we touched on just about 9.5 million. How do you feel about having less supply? From a packing shed point of view or from a marketer's point of view, it, it's, always, it's always difficult when you work really hard from one season to the next, you know, creating markets and opportunities to sell fruit. And then you have less fruit the year after to try and you know service all those markets that you work on but you know growers this year if they're 50% down roughly on last year's volume given the increase of value they're probably going to make the same kind of money so you know from a grower's point of view I'd imagine no grower ever likes to have less of a crop but given the returns this year I can't imagine too many of them will be complaining. How much higher is the returns that they're getting? Roughly 100% higher. So last year we kind of averaged around about $20 a tray sale. This year we're currently selling 
anywhere between kind of 42 to 45 dollars in this market and and moving up so yeah it's it's a much better market and from a picking perspective how has harvest been how's the quality been yeah, quality's been really good. So last season we finished up, we averaged around about 78% premium across the board of, across our whole harvest. This year we're tracking around about 86% premium. You know, usually that's just a few different factors, but one of those mainly being they're less fruit on the trees. So you typically get a bit more leaf cover and that kind of protects the fruit a bit better. So yeah, obviously uh, that helps. Can you predict anything for the next year? Yeah, our fruit set's already sitting out there. I think we'll have a reasonable season. I don't know if it'll be as big as our 3 million tray season last season, but it'll be up there. I think it'll be probably anywhere between maybe, for us personally, as a company, maybe somewhere around about 2.4 to 2.8 million trays. And I'd imagine that, you know, as an early indication, that WA might be up around about 8.5 to 9 million trays. Has there been any seasonal conditions that have made things complicated this year? Not really. Uh, it's been it's been quite a wet or a mild summer, you know, which kind of worried us a little bit during fruit set. Usually, the cold weather and the rain isn't isn't really inducive to good pollination, but we seem to have had enough warmer days to be able to get a good pollination through November. But all in all, this season's harvest is, has has been pretty smooth. And how would you summarise this season of avocados? I would summarise it as being one of the few, you know, really good opportunities as an industry that we're we're going to have in the next five to ten years. We've got a lot of avocados coming online, or a lot of avocado trees coming online over the next kind of five years. So, you know, these kind of smaller seasons where these kind of prices happen will be, you know, few and far between. We've got a lot of work ahead of us to create new markets and you know diversify ourselves further into export. So, I'd say it's a great it's been a great opportunity for anyone that's had fruit, but you know, I, I wouldn't be banking on seasons like this to happen too too many times in the, in the next five to ten years. Avocado Collective General Manager Josh Franceschi with Sophie Johnson. So the Avocado Collective due to pack 1.4 million trays this season compared to almost 3 million last season. And according to Josh, as you heard there, the state looking at packing around 3.8 to 3.9 million trays this season. And that's a big change from the 9.5 million trays packed in WA last year. And the good news is prices sitting at around $42 to $45 a tray this season, which is a doubling of last season's prices. 27 past 12 on the country hour and thousands of hectares of land have been lost over the last few days due to bushfires caused by lightning in the agricultural region of Donnybrook, about 200 kilometres south of Perth. And the fire damage to forestry plantations in the region could end up costing companies in excess of a million dollars. One of the plantations caught in the blaze is owned by WA Plantation Resources. Chief Executive Officer Ian Telfer says he's not been yet able to access the area, but he is expecting significant damage. We've got about 500 hectares of both pine and blue gum, as well as native forest areas contained. So we're unclear of the exact damage and the boundary of the fire, but it yeah, potentially affects up to 500 hectares of our plantations. Well, is there, uh, you know, any way that this, you know, fi- some of these 500 hectares could have been protected or do you, was it all actively on fire? No, well, again, we haven't been able to have access. Obviously, we've been reliant on the system, if you like, to fight. We've got crews out there um, working with the volunteers and with the fire brigades on containment lines and we get, we'll get some assessments during today but it'll probably next week before we can assess it. I'm expecting the younger age plantations will be affected, if not by the fire, certainly by the radiated heat 
and we'll replant those. And then on the more mature uh, blue gums in particular, uh, we'll be able to look to salvage those uh, in due course. What kind of timber is this in this area? And, and you mentioned there was some, some young timber and old timber. Yeah, so we're planting up and preparing areas to plant more pines, long-term obviously for soil production, but uh, the area affected is a 2020 planting, so two years old. That'll need to be replanted. The blue gum areas that we have traditionally range from 12 years or more down to some more recent plantings. And again, we'll then look to have to harvest them in due course and recover what we can and then re-establish that property. But that will take some time. It's obviously very hilly terrain as well, so there's a fair bit of work to do to assess the plantations. But I'm hopeful that probably, hopefully, the area is limited to about 300 of the 500, so maybe half. See what happens. And probably, as I said, next week when we can actually get access and the foresters can assess the impacts. Is there a dollar figure that you could put on what's potentially been damaged? The, the dollar figure that is probably the easiest to understand is that on the basis that it's been, particularly the areas will need replanting. The cost of reforesting those areas and re-establishing them will be in excess of a million dollars. So at the very least, that's quantifying the, the economic damage to it on the basis that certainly on the mature trees, we'll be able to salvage them and provide some commercial recovery of the timber that we've obviously lost as well. Wow. And will that be a cost that you have to you have to bear as, as a company? Uh, it will, yeah. I mean, the overall impact of these fires is on the ongoing supply of fibre into both sawmills and... Um, into our own market. So there's an economic advantage immediately in terms of recovering, but there's also the lost future supply that um, we lose that time to start all over again. So that has a long-term strategic impact as well. WA Plantation Resources CEO Ian Telfer speaking with Jackie Lynch about that damage to plantations in the southwest. He's hoping to get some early assessments today, but probably won't be able to access the plantations until next week. Pretty significant cost of replanting burnt plantations in excess of a million dollars. In a moment, you're off to the Bureau. No news headlines today. But before you head there, a text has come in from Sam in Katanning. She says her dog Archie has gone missing. He's a black and tan Kelpie cross hunterway. She says he's missing from the Katanning Wood Nilling uh, area and has been missing for a few days. Uh, Sam says his microchip is registered to the Katanning Shire and she says he's wary around strangers. So if you know where Archie is or if you've seen him, please send through a text to the text line here at the Country Hour, 0448 922604, and I'll pass that information on to Sam. That number again to text through if you've seen Archie. He's a Kelpie Cross Hunter. You can send me a text to 0448 922604. 29 minutes to one on the country hour and it's time to head to the Bureau. Bob Tarr is today's duty forecaster. Good afternoon to you, Bob. Yeah, good afternoon. Hey, um, let's start in the Southwest Land Division this afternoon. What can we expect today and over the next few days? Yeah, so we have a wee cold front approaching the uh, Southwest Capes and that cold front will contract away in the Southern Ocean during this afternoon. Uh, In the wake of that cold front, we'll have uh, quite a strong high pressure system building eastward and uh, rapidly becoming established through southern and central parts of the state. So we will see a pretty good surge of southeasterly winds during tonight and uh, tomorrow across uh, southern and central areas. So uh, I'll be feeling much cooler 
across uh, the Esperance Coast and up through uh, Kalgoorlie region. So um, that'll be for tomorrow. Uh, along the West Coast, it won't really be cooling down, though. We'll have a trough deepen quickly down the West Coast. So uh, it'll be pretty similar temperatures to today or maybe even a little bit uh, warmer tomorrow. Uh, there will be some strong winds uh, across the, the Scarp and then uh, some strong winds again across the Darling Scarp on uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning with gusts to 80 kilometers an hour possible. Um, no rainfall expected over the next couple of days. Uh, then on Sunday afternoon, uh, some thunderstorms are expected to come down the trough, and we could see thunderstorm activity as far south as maybe far northern parts of the lower west, but certainly areas in the Midwest and, and also through the central weed belt and potentially into the gold fields as well for Sunday afternoon. So some of that may be uh, high-based activity, and so we'll have to keep an eye out for uh, some dry lightning okay. through that area. Uh, and as we go into Monday, that trough will become... Uh, mobile moving inland from the west coast and the thunderstorms are remain possible over inland parts of the southwest land division but uh, this time not extending down into the southwest or the great southern like we saw last time uh, but there will be plenty of thunderstorm activity out through the wheat belt uh, and then extending through the gold fields in the uh, Esperance region and there's a potential that some of that activity could become severe on Monday with uh, damaging winds uh, heavy rainfall and even some hail uh, so we'll keep an eye on that one but uh it does look less likely that through some of the eastern areas of the Southwest Land Division that those thunderstorms would be uh, producing dry lightning. So at least there'll be some more rainfall associated with that. And then uh, behind that, uh, things should, should clear out and we'll get some cooler weather with another southeasterly surge. Okay. What's the picture across the northern and the eastern forecast districts uh, today and for the next few days, Bob? Yeah, sure. So there's a trough that extends through uh, down into the Eucla, um, and that trough is moving towards the northeast. So we will get a cooler push of air into the Eucla tomorrow, uh, and then just a chance of thunderstorms through the interior uh, during the weekend, but uh, nothing real significant through that region. There is an increase in uh, moisture into the Kimberley, certainly nothing like the last one that we saw, uh, but there is a severe thunderstorm warning for eastern parts with some slow-moving thunderstorms over that region, uh, which is not really the, the worst news because the uh, certainly the most impacted areas in the Kimberley from the the last tropical low are through central parts and extending out through the Broom Derby area. So uh, the good news, I guess, is that um, those areas are likely to see less in the way of the rainfall. The heavier rainfall looks to be over the east and the north over the next uh, day or two. Uh, and then uh, thunderstorms remaining possible across the region into the early part of next week, but it really just be kind of seasonal activity across the, the Kimberley. We aren't expecting to see any uh, significant river rises in the uh, flooding that's occurring on the lower part of the Fitzroy River should continue to gradually ease over the next few days. Alrighty, and um, any warnings that we need to be aware of this afternoon, Bob? Uh, yeah, we have a few warnings. So I mentioned the severe thunderstorm warning over the East Kimberley. We also have uh, marine wind warnings uh, for strong winds that will be from the Pilbara coast all the way around to the Euclid coast, including a gale warning off the Perth coast. Uh, we're like we have a uh, fire weather warning for the uh, Ashburton. Uh, coast right now, and there's likely to be a few fire weather warnings for tomorrow, uh, so keep an eye out for that. Uh, and then there's a heat wave warning, uh, mainly uh, over less populated areas in the northwest of the state. Hey, Bob, thanks so much for that update. Sure, no worries. ABC Radio, fire ban information. And as you heard there, a total fire ban has been issued today for the Shire of Ashburton in the Pilbara due to the risk of fire. 
During a total fire ban, you can't light fires for cooking and camping. You can't carry out hot work like grinding or welding or go off-road driving using a four-wheel drive or quad bike, except for agricultural purposes. For more about what you can and can't do during a total fire ban, just head on over to the DFES website. That's dfes.wa.gov.au slash total fire bans. And a map of the affected areas is available at Emergency WA. So just repeating, there is a total fire ban in place today for the Ashburton Shire in the Pilbara. So check emergencywa.gov.au for more information. And a harvest and vehicle movement ban has just been imposed in the Shire of Cranbrook. So for more information, again, about what you can and can't do during a harvest or vehicle movement ban, just contact your local government. And there is just one warning still in place for fires this afternoon in the Shire of Donnybrook Bailing up in the southwest. The good news is that the bushfire is stationary, it's contained and it's under control. So we're expecting a downgrade from a watch and act soon. But until then, just head on over to the Emergency WA website. That's emergency.wa.gov.au for more information. Taking a look now at the rainfall totals for the last 24 hours to 9 o'clock this morning, starting in the Kimberley with totals over 5 mils. El Questro received 39. Uh, 10 mils for Gibb River. Lake Argyle Resort, 11 mils there. Mullabulla Airstrip, 7 mils. Mills, Mount Barnett 12 and 12 for Theta as well and nothing recorded across the rest of the northern and eastern forecast districts and nothing across the entire southwest land division. You're listening to the WA Country Hour on ABC Radio WA. Now more than six months on from the spread of foot and mouth disease to Indonesia, the full effect on Australia's cattle industry is becoming clearer. Live exports out of the state were down by about 30% last year and domestic markets have been forced to adjust. Nigel Brown is a pastoralist based in WA's Murchison region and he says the disease caused big losses to his operation, forcing him to sell his cattle for half their value. And even though FMD hasn't made it to Australian shores, he believes the scare did a lot of damage to the cattle industry's reputation. Yeah, it really impacted us, you know, when everything was green and rosy and Obviously got aeroplanes in and conducted a muster and got all our cattle down heading towards the yards and the FND speculation then started to unfold and, you know, the more the media broadcasted it, you know, the the lower the cattle prices went and we virtually ended up having to settle and sell our cattle for half of their value. And as you mentioned, a big part of that was speculation, maybe fear that people were hearing. What was the message exactly that was being put out that people were understanding the situation to be? I think it was just so much scare tactics that, you know, if it came in, all the cattle value would be worth nothing, even though it was a, you know, a localised incident then it was the risk that all the pastoralists would have to then either, you know, destock and, and the flood of cattle to the market, what that would do. And, you know, it was really everything then unfolded in people's minds versus reality and, and the price really took a big dive. And that would have been experienced across the board, is that correct? Yes, yeah, sadly, had you had cattle in the yards to sell that, that foot week or two, you know, that the speculation was all unfolding, then, yeah anyone in a bad situation like that unfortunately like we were would have the same consequence. So then what was the next step once you had to sell your cattle at that decreased rate what then happened after that? It's like any news story you wait a week or two or three after it and everyone forgets about it and the price goes back close to where it originally was. So how harmful would you have said that whole experience was? Obviously, we're talking about um, a monetary loss, but did you feel as though reputation was also damaged through that? Well, I think everything. You know, hundreds of thousands of dollars was lost. Your morals were lost. 
your spirit was just destroyed. You know, everything good you were trying to do was just totally unfolded in a week. Now, what's your feeling? Do you feel secure and or was it, or did you always feel that way? Look, I think it's always in the back of your mind. You know, and it, and it really does depend how good we have quarantine and the borders and, you know, international travels and, you know, those high-risk areas and helping, you know, our neighbouring countries to try and get it under control before it's a problem to us. So I think, you know, risk mitigation there is priority number one. I mean, it's always a, a minor threat to us here, you know, but the sad fact is we can't vaccinate against it because if we do, it's a, it's a live virus and we'll then be treated as if we have foot and mouth. So... Yeah, it's, it's a bad situation to be in. Yes, we could fix it and vaccinate, but then we jeopardise our own market again. So now is it just the matter of moving on with business and, and fingers crossed, obviously it doesn't arrive to our shores, but then, yeah, just, just getting on with it? Yeah, like now it's, you know, around the campfire, it's not even talked about except our big loss. Other than that, it's not even on anyone's radar, really. It's, you know, it's something to be aware of, but really not talked about. Yeah, and I guess that's what sort of the takeaway here is. Although five months ago that was a very real issue, everyone's moved on. We're now we're now talking floods, fires, uh, etc. Do you, in, on some level, feel as though the impacts have still carried on, but everyone's just forgotten and moved on? Well, I mean, from our side, the impacts are definitely carrying on. You know, we had big budgets in with the banks, and we have to review all those budgets now with them and meetings tomorrow and. You know, and, and change our end goals and game plans to address the deficit in financial loss. And, yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely be feeling this one for a, a long time to come. Murchison pastoralist Nigel Brown speaking with Demetria Panagiotaris. It's 18 to 1, and the company behind a massive solar farm and power export project in the Northern Territory has gone into voluntary administration. Sun Cable is backed by some pretty prominent investors, the likes of billionaires Andrew Forrest and Mike Cannon-Brooks. It was planning to build a 4,200-kilometre underwater cable to supply Singapore with renewable power. Dr Jeffrey James has worked in renewables for more than 20 years and has quite a lot of background in subsea cables in particular. Despite the setback, though, he backs the idea of the project and is hopeful it will still go ahead. I and some others wrote about and looked at the idea of some alternative ways of exploiting Australia's energy. And the most direct physical way would be to put a cable to Asia and send our electricity there. So really from that very simple idea, a number of people, including myself, are looking at the details of that and the feasibility. So it's kind of your your research and, and you're looking into it a number of years ago that sort of stemmed this plan, could you say, for Sun, Sun Cable? I think Sun Cable were influenced by what my colleagues and I were doing, but also others. Research isn't done in a vacuum and there was a, a current of thinking. I was, I was one person writing about these ideas. There were others. I think we, we got uh, some credibility and influence through being commissioned by the Pilbara Development Commission to do a study of uh, how to export Pilbara solar energy. That gave us the funding and the, the impetus to, to look at the problems in detail of how you'd actually go about building a cable and associated solar infrastructure to, to supply the ASEAN region. The news out this week is that Sun Cable has gone into voluntary administration. It's sort of to do with disagreements from within over funding and, and the mm-hmm. future direction mm-hmm. of the company. What, what was your response when you heard that news? 
Well, it, it was unexpected, but thinking about it, it's not extremely surprising that there'd be a corporate disagreements about such a such a project. The two two key investors, are both quite strong-minded gentlemen, and would have, you know, it's easy to imagine that they might not agree on everything. How it's going to turn out, I don't know. I'm hoping, and my colleagues uh, are all hoping, I think, that it's not going to stop the company in its tracks, but rather mean a change in direction, a new business model or, or some such. Uh, I think the fundamental idea is still sound. And of the many different proponents, I thought Sun Cable, I actually met them more than once. And I, I, I think they had the most well thought out commercial and technical pathway that I'd come across in this area. So I really hope they recover from that and move on in some in some form. How important is it that this kind of project does eventuate? I think it's absolutely critical. So for context, there are multiple ways to use Australia's renewable energy for uh, strategic and export benefits. Hydrogen is a big subject today. That's uh, green hydrogen can be produced by renewable energy and water, but that's only one option. Another option is to have energy intensive industries in the areas of production. So minerals processing, data centers, new industries could be created on the basis of massive renewable energy potential that Australia has. So in effect, that's exporting our energy in embodied form, embodied in products. And thirdly is the cable option. Now, I guess I'm a technical guy. I, I really like the cable option because it's physically direct, efficient, and has less conversion involved than something like hydrogen. The disadvantage is that it creates a single point of failure. So I, I, I think that's probably the, the the key differentiator. Indeed, it's something that would really support the transformation of ASEAN grids. And this is a direction ASEAN nations are taking in any case. It's a way of linking Australia into that progression and creating a, a new economy, a new international economy. Renewable energy expert Dr Jeffrey James, who is currently the technical director of Pilbara Solar, he was speaking with Michelle Stanley about using a subsea cable to export Australian renewable energy to Asia. Now, backpackers are back in Australia and farmers are welcoming the boost to the rural workforce. More than 135,000 working holidaymakers have made their way back down under since borders first opened to the fully vaccinated. In the past month alone, more than 1,800 working holidaymakers have been granted visas. Richard Clark runs Westaway Raspberry Farm in southern Tasmania and he says it's made a huge difference. They are back in force. They are back from all countries around the world and we are so relieved. It's been a very tough two years during COVID with international border closures. Finding enough seasonal workers to harvest our substantial crop at the same time as every other farm in Tasmania is also trying to harvest their crop has been extraordinarily difficult across the country and backpacker availability is a really key piece in the puzzle of workforce requirements during a busy harvest season. So they top up your workforce quite well? Yeah, so we, we, we employ a lot of local people from various different backgrounds. They come in year in, year out, but there just aren't enough farm-ready workers who are available in a short one, two, three-week window to be able to harvest the fruit that Tasmania requires in our short summer harvest. So we need to supplement those local people with a keen, motivated, fit, young, intelligent workforce, which we find that backpackers fall into that category. So they're good enough? 
Oh, they're wonderful. I mean, new backpackers who have never worked on farms, who have come from Tokyo or Paris or, you know, those types of places do sometimes struggle and take a little bit longer to find their feet. But many backpackers are travelling all around the country picking mangoes and watermelons and cotton and various different things. Those guys find raspberries a pleasure to pick and they pick up the, the, the skill very quickly. And so, no, they're a wonderful workforce and a wonderful group of people personality-wise as well. Richard Clark here at the Westaway Raspberry Farm. You've got uh, one of your, your key people here with us at the moment. Can you introduce us? Yes, certainly. So this is Thomas. Thomas is from France. Thomas is a second-time uh, worker on our farm. A wonderful, wonderful addition, and I was so, so pleased to receive his phone call back in November that he was back in Australia and planning to come and, and looking forward to coming back to our farm. So you wanted to come back to Tassie after having been here before? Yeah, we were here before like five years ago and we plan to come back in Westaway when we arrive in Australia in uh, October. And yeah, we called Richard and it was a pleasure to come back. This year we are particularly doing other jobs than the first year. Like we are basically doing pickings the first first years. But now we are doing like more other jobs like working in the shop, uh, driving, delivery, processing shared and other kind of jobs. So it's really a pleasure to, to work here. Is it part of your visa requirements to sort of work in a rural regional area? Yeah, we need for the third visa we need to work uh, six months in a farm and uh, it's part of the job so it's a pleasure to be there. What about accommodation while you're in Australia? It's, it's pretty tight in some areas including Tasmania and expensive. Uh, Richard provides us some accommodation on the, on the farm so it's really nice, it's like come ground with everything we need. So how long are you here for and where to next? We are still here for eight months and we probably go to the mainland and go to the western Australia after Tassie. So. Will you be looking for more farm work? Uh, yeah, we definitely need more, more farm work, like four months or something like this to extend our visa, but yeah, we will see. I'm also with Benedita, who's from the north of Italy. Benedita, uh, you wanted to work on a farm in Tasmania or was it part of your visa requirement as well? Yeah, sure. I came here in Australia like at the end of November. I just wanted to make a new experience. So, And I've heard stories from my friends that they did this. They came here to us in Australia with the working holiday visa and did this adventure actually in farms and so you're here at Westaway Raspberry Farm. How's it going, picking raspberries? It's good, actually. It's, it's not easy because uh, I've never had any experience like this, but it's being challenging for me. But that's what I wanted, actually. Fiona Breen chatting with backpackers Thomas and Benita who are working on Richard Clark's Raspberry Farm in Tasmania. Nine to one on the country hour early in the program. You caught up with Josh Franceschi from the Avocado Collective based in Manjimup and he told you this year's crop well down in terms of production. But prices have recovered really well and a text has come in from an anonymous texter who says the only issue with the high returns for avocado growers is that this has the potential to create another planting boom. The texter says the fact is 40% of trees in the ground haven't produced a piece of fruit yet so we're yet to see the effect of this on the market. The text also says commercial pack houses have been encouraging people to plant more trees over the last eight years which is easier to do when grower returns are high but let's face it, it's smart business for the pack houses as every unit packed is income. That text in from an anonymous texter, what do you reckon? 
Has the state's avocado industry dug its own grave by planting too many trees in the avocado industry? You can let me know on the text 0448922604 and just remember to include your name and where you're from. To the markets now, and there was a cattle sale at Mount Barker today and yesterday. Uh, Thursday's wiener sale saw 1,666 head yarded and 157 head penned at today's trade sale. Tracy Kilner was at both. Tracy, let's start with yesterday's sale. Numbers were down for a total yarding of 1,166 head of good quality calves yesterday for our wiener sale. Heavyweight steer calves dominated the yarding with over 600 calves weighing in at over 330 kilos. Prices trended up on most categories with feeder buyers chasing weight and restockers keen to procure the quality Angus replacement heifers. Medium weight steers reached 542 cents while heavyweights topped at 478 cents and Angus heifers to restockers made up to 464 cents a kilo. Wiener steers weighing over 380 kilos returned 370 to 464 cents. Steers weighing between 330 and 380 kilos sold from 424 to 478 cents. The lighter steers weighing 280 to 330 kilos made 430 to 542 cents and weights under 280 kilos returned 420 to 518 cents a kilo. Wiener heifers weighing over 380 kilos sold from 360 to 460 cents. Weights from 330 to 380 kilos made 348 to 464 cents. The lighter weights between 280 and 330 kilos sold from 365 to 470 cents and weights under 280 kilos returned 370 to 458 cents a kilo. Today's trade sale, prices trended up with the quality offered. The yarding was dominated by good quality heavy cows, which sold 240 cents, and a small selection of trade weight steers topped at 396 and heifers at 370 cents a kilo. Grind steers weighing 500 to 600 kilos sold for 280 to 396 cents. Lighter weights made from 328 to 360 cents to feeder buyers. The grown heifers weighing over 540 kilos made from 250 to 370 cents, depending on quality, while the heavier weight heifers sold from 250 to 300 cents a kilo. Heavy cows sold from 180 to 240 cents, while store lines returned 170 to 198 cents to processors and up to 262 cents to restockers. This has been Tracy Kilner for Meat and Livestock Australia's National Livestock Reporting Service. Thanks for that, Tracy. Just a few minutes away from the news, but first let's get a wrap of the wool market. Uh, this week, the eastern market indicator was up six to close at 13.33, while here in the west, the market was down 19 to close at 14.67. Danny Burkett joins me now. Danny, what happened in the market this week? Yeah, just before I start that, Happy New Year to all the country listeners. Um, I'll just start by quoting the AWEX report this week, and the market commenced the 2023 calendar year following the lead of the last sale from the previous seven years, which have all opened up making gains. So a very good market opening for across Australia in wool. In Fremantle, 18 micron, they quoted off five at 18.70. 19 micron, now even though the next quotes I'll give are in the negative territory, the eastern states actually gained on all of these micron categories. I would suggest um, just a few types in Fremantle made it a little difficult to get a firm quote. 19 microns was quoted minus 20 to close at 16.30 in Fremantle. 20 microns, 14.90 on the close. They were off 35. 21 microns, the quote was 14.20. Now, they had that off 50 for the week. But as I said, I would suggest very difficult in Fremantle um, in the market this week to gain enough types to form a quote. 
in the eastern states they were quoted roughly 30 cents better than where we finished another very good sign for the wool market on those types in particular the merinos that were offered is that melbourne traded in isolation yesterday and each of the micron categories made gains so a very good result for Fremantle. if we just walk through those prices what i'd like to do is just have a look at that in comparison to the last two years and the last 10 years 18 micron, if we look in the last two years, it has spent 80% of its time above today's price. In the last 10 years, only 45%. 19 micron in the last two years has spent 65% above today's price. In the last 10 years, only 45%. This is where it gets interesting in the wool market for the medium growers. If we look at a 20 micron closing at 1490, in the last two years, that sits at the 90th decile, stating that it's only spent 10% of its time above today's price. The last 10 years, roughly 30% above today's price. 21 micron, the last two years, again, it sits at the 90th decile, saying that it's only spent 10% of its time above today's price in the last two years. In the last 10 years, 40, 35% above today's price. So if we look at today's market in comparison to where we've been in the last two years, very sound in particular on the medium types. Pieces and bellies across the board, regardless of Micron or VN, minus five. So very good result on those. Important to say too, regardless of VM, as the VM will start to come into the market as we go on. Oddments, locks, stains, crutchings, fully firms. If we look at lambs and wiener types, again, fully firm as they have been over the previous 12 months or more. So a great way to start the wool market. And we started firm, and that is on the back of the two big rises we had prior to the recess. So great result. Absolutely. Right. So who were the main buyers this week, Danny? I'll give you the main buyers as in companies, but I would suggest to you the vast majority of that business is going to China. Uh, if not for first stage processing, uh, but certainly uh, the vast majority would have been shipped into China. Tech will trading taking 15.5% of Merino fleece all across the country. TNU, 12.5%. Endeavour will exports, 11.5%. And PJ Morris, the West Australian business, just shy of 10%. So no, um, no surprises in those top four, in particular Tech Wool. Interesting to note, Tech Wool, third largest buy in crossbred. Tech will fourth largest buy in oddments and tech will largest buy in skirting. So again, tech will have opened, come into the market as they have been for the previous 12 months, leading the charge, which is great to see. Absolutely right. And uh, just quickly, what's on next week? We have Sydney, Melbourne, Fremantle, 51,000 bars or just just above 51,000. Melbourne is a three-day sale. Again, I think the volume will attract business into the market. I think volume at this stage is a key to the market. It allows the Australian exporter to make sales overseas with confidence, knowing full well they can come into the wool market and get the quantity they need to fulfil their orders. Hey, thank you so much for that, Danny, and Happy New Year to you. Talk next week. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet writes an open letter to the Jewish community after confessing to wearing a Nazi uniform at his 21st birthday. Residents in flood-affected communities in WA's Kimberley call for more help. 
and the mystery of a much-loved Australian chocolate bar. After four years and a million-dollar government grant, what has happened to the return of the polywaffle? Those stories are more coming up this lunchtime on The World Today. Yeah, that's definitely a show to stick around for. And that's it for today's Country Hour, my last Country Hour for a little while. Belinda Varischetti will be back in the chair on Monday. It's been fantastic to have you along this summer. I'll catch you again very soon. You're off to the news now. It's one o'clock.